This is the Icelandic True Crimes Podcast, your weekly injection of Icelandic crime and mystery cases. I'm your host, Margaret Björs. Some of the episodes may feel disturbing for some listeners, so I advise to skip ahead when needed. Also keep in mind that care and respect must be taken in discussion of sensitive cases. You can find additional information on each case under show notes on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. Let's dive in. In the year 1740, a death penalty was ruled against siblings in North Múlasísla County for committing incest. The year before, Sunneva Jónsdóttir, who was then 16 years old, had given birth to a child, and her brother, Jón Jónsson, then only 14 years old, was said to be the child's father. According to the grand judgment, Sunneva was to be drowned, and her brother Jón was to be beheaded. This case immediately raised a lot of eyebrows, but two years later it brought even more attention when Sinneva had another child while held in custody, waiting for her execution. Her brother Jón was then again said to be the child's father, until Sinneva revealed who the real father was, a high-ranking magistrate of Múlasísla County by the name Hans Vium who had forced Sinneva to declare her brother as her second child's father instead of Hans Vium himself. These cases span almost 20 years and are one of the longest and most complex criminal cases known in Iceland judicial history. They have ever since been referred to as the Sinneva cases and been among the most well-known cases in Iceland's history. However, the Sunneva cases are not only known for the double death penalty Sunneva received for committing incest, but also for her rebellion against the patriarchy and the extortion she and other women in her time had to face. So history won't repeat itself, it's important that we learn from it. Or, as Mark Twain put it, history never repeats itself, but it may rhyme. For that reason, I now want to introduce to you the saga of Sunneva Jónsdóttir. Let's deep dive into this case. When Sunneva became pregnant, she and her brother Jón were foster children at the farm Geitavík in East Borgarfjörður, located in North Múlasísla County in the east of Iceland. It is believed Sunneva was born in 1723 and Jón in 1725, as they were 16 and 14 years old when Sunneva gave birth to her first child in the year 1739. There is little known of their parents and childhood, as no documentation exists. Sunneva was described as the most beautiful woman at the time, dark-eyed with long black hair, drawn-out facial features, and pale skin. Jón was described as being a typical 14-year-old boy. After Sunneva had given birth, she stated her next-door neighbor was the father, 
a farmer named Erlendur Jónsson, living at Bakki, born in 1710 and therefore 13 years older than Sinneva. Erlendur confessed to be the father, but four days later he withdrew his confession. The priest at Desemiri, Gisli Gislason, then expostulated with Sinneva, and by giving her a godly reminder, he eventually got her to renounce her declaration of Erlendur being the child's father. After four days of questioning, Sinneva changed her statement and said her little brother Jón was the father of her child. In those days, women in Iceland were obliged to name their child's father, and the authorities fiercely insisted on them to state who the father was. There are examples of women being flogged to coerce them to name their child's father. They could declare who their child's father was, but that alone was not enough for a conviction, according to the grand judgment, because the father also had to admit to having had a sexual encounter with the mother and to be their child's father. Some of those men fled, and if they got away, the mother was still sentenced to death on the basis of her confession, and she then drowned in Drakingarhelur at Thingvellir. It is believed that in those ages, people may have been tortured with a thumbscrew to force out a confession during questioning. This was a common torture method elsewhere in Europe, and therefore it is not unlikely that it had been used in Iceland too. A thumbscrew was a simple vice with protruding studs on the interior surfaces. The victim's thumbs were placed in it and then slowly crushed by tightening the screws. The crushing bars were lined with sharp metal points to puncture the nail bed of their thumb and inflict even greater pain. If you visit the website icelandictruecrimes.com and click show notes, you can see a drawing of how those thumb screws looked like. In the 17th and 18th centuries, it was the opinion that women who had a child outside of marriage were loose and vicious, and if they refused to name their child's father, they must be concealing that they had committed incest, and therefore any measures were taken to get a confession out of these mothers. Sunneva may have been questioned and tortured with a thumbscrew during her questioning to have her name her brother Jón as a child's father, but historical documentation can be found from 1608 of Thordis Haldorsdóttir, another woman suspected of committing incest, who had refused to name her brother-in-law Thomas Bedvarsson as the father of her child, and therefore the authorities resorted to torturing her. When she was threatened with a thumbscrew, she supposedly confessed to Thomas being her child's father, and according to the grand judgment, it was an incest to have a child with your brother-in-law. However, historical documentation does not state whether Thortis was only threatened with a thumbscrew, or if it was actually used to torture her with it until she named Thomas. Under the national law, a reminder was to be given to women if they refused to name their child's father and if that did not work, they could be put out of sacrament. If that did not work either, they would be punished for their resistance to secular and sacred authorities, by fining or whipping them. However, to use torture during questioning 
required a legal authorization by the king, which could take a long time to wait for, coming all the way from Denmark. In the case of Thortis, the sheriff couldn't wait any longer and ordered an executioner to put a thumbscrew on her thumbs, which he did, but whether he then tightened it or not isn't stated clearly in any documentation I've come across. But the child she never had given birth to was taken away from her. Since there were no jails in Iceland by then, Sunneva and her brother Jón were taken as prisoners into custody to Jens Pedersen Liam at Skriðukluster in Fljótsdalur, a Danish man who was the magistrate of Múlasísla County. Jens Liam is considered to be the first of the Liam family name in Iceland, coming from Copenhagen in Denmark to Reyðafjörður in Iceland as a sales clerk, but later he became an assistant to Bessie Guðmundsson, the then magistrate of Múlasísla. Jens Viem then took over the magistracy and stayed at Skriðukluster. Jens Viem had in fact been transferred to Iceland from Denmark to be refined due to him being thought of as a troublesome man. He was reputed as a merciless and fearless magistrate and was not good at his job, and was described as a habitual drinker and a rugged bully, but also good in fencing. At Desemire, on November 2nd in 1739, Jens Viem held a court hearing over the siblings Suneva and Jón, and then named eight assisting judges to the case. On April 20th, the following year, at Blesastadir in Fljotstallur, Suneva and Jón were sentenced to death for committing incest according to the grand judgment which then applied. Jón was to be beheaded and Suneva be drowned. Their case was then sent to the Icelandic parliament called Althingi in accordance with the law from 1663 which stated that all death penalties were to be taken to Althingi in Thingvetir in the presence of those sentenced. Jón, then 15 years old, is to this day considered to be the youngest to ever receive a death penalty in Iceland. But a few days later, on May 7th the same year, a boat with Jens Viem and seven others aboard foundered on their way from Bremnes in Seydesfjörður to Lómundarfjörður. Among those with Jens Viem were his assistant Jón Bjarnason and a woman by the name Vilborg who Jens Viem was suspected of having an affair with. The boat was found the day after in shore between Skaunanes and Östdalur, with four dead bodies on board, but the fifth body found on the beach at Sletanes Fjara by Bremnes. The bodies of Jens Viem, his assistant Jón and Vilborg were not found. This accident was thought to be mysterious, as the weather had not been that bad and theories of possible causes arose. For example, that Jens Viem and his assistant Jón had been drunk before they boarded the boat, and then had a fight with each other and those on the boat with them, and that the boat had then turned over and everyone on board drowned. Also, two stab wounds were found on the dead body on the beach, which were thought to be caused by a light sword with a long and thin blade and the assistant Jón was known to own one. Therefore, the stab wounds were thought to be caused by the assistant Jón or Jens Viem, which had then escaped along with Vilborg to England by English ship which had been in the area when the boat was found. 
but in the year 1739, Jens Wiem had resigned from his magistracy of Mulasistla County, of Mulasistla County, and received his retirement after he had ruled the death penalty against Geneva and Young. His son, Hans Jensson Wiem, took over the magistracy of Mulasistla County on April 13th, the following year, a week before his father had given his ruling that Geneva and Jon should be executed for committing incest. Before that, Hans Wiem had been the county magistrate of Vesmanair, or the Westman Islands, but then later been assigned to assist his father in Mulasisla. Hans Wiem wasn't very knowledgeable on law, but by then he was 25 years old and married to Gudrun Arnodóttir, a daughter of the wealthy farmer Arne in Arnheiðarstaðir, who was at the time thought to be among the wealthiest men in the area. While they lived in Vestmanaeyjar, Hans Wiem had two children outside of their marriage, but he and Guðrún had a total of four children together. Later, Hans Wiem married Una Guðmundsdóttir from Nes in Lólmundarfjörður, after the death of his wife Guðrún. Hans Wiem was described as a bulky and broad-shouldered man, rather hard-bitten and impudent, impulsive and eloquent, habitual drinker, unruly when drunk, and prone to getting into fights. It was also said that he was not particularly popular among women, or to even get along with them, and he was not known to be involved in any other court case featuring a woman, other than that of Sinevas. Hans Wiem took over the case of Sinneva and Jon after his father's death. On July 11th, a year later in 1741, the sibling's death penalty was to be upheld at the Icelandic Parliament Althingi in Thingvallir, in the sibling's presence. But only Hans Wiem and Jon attended, along with one of Hans Wiem's witnesses, Sigurdur Eilsson. Hans Wiem told the court that Sunneva couldn't attend due to bad health, and that his other witness to her illness couldn't make it until the following day. The day after, on July 12th, Hans Wiem provided a letter of the matter, stating he had asked Sunneva if she could attend despite being ill, but that she had said she wasn't able to travel by horse to the court hearing. As witnesses, three men had signed a statement saying they were present when Hans Wiem had asked Geneva of her illness. But then Hans Wiem explained to the court that his other witness to Geneva's illness was still not able to arrive in time. When the witness finally arrived, a man named Brynjolfur Brynjolfsson, the court asked Hans Wiem who that man was, which he then replied was a schoolboy. But when asked for Brynjolfur's identity papers, he could not provide them. The court was suspicious of Brynjolfur, and the sibling's defender protested against Brynjolfur being questioned on Sinneva's health without his papers to confirm his identity. Furthermore, their defender protested against the court validating the reason given for Sinneva's absence and insisted they postponed the case. The parliament sought hard against Hans Wiem for not bringing Sinneva and for the witnesses who they deemed insignificant to the case. Therefore, it was ruled that his witnesses to Sinneva's illness were unlawful. The case was postponed until Althingi was to be held the year after. Until then, Sinneva and Jon 
or to remain in Hans Williams' custody. The court found Hans Williams' excuses to be rather suspicious and his reason for Sinova's absence not credible. Before this, Hans Wiem had transferred Sinova into custody at the farm Eilstader in Flotstaller, his own home, but left her brother Jon to stay in custody at Skredekluster. The siblings were then used as cheap labor during their custody. But in the coming fall, Hans Wiem leased Skredekluster and moved there, leaving Sinova still in custody at Eilstader in Flotstaller, with one man guarding her. Her custody was later thought of as unusual, since she was free to walk around with any manacles, which Hans Wiem alleged to be due to lack of guards available. Now I'm going to glance over the aspects of Iceland's history, which are of importance to the Sinova cases, and also the 18th century, a century of tyranny, royal autocracy, and patriarchy. Iceland became a commonwealth in the year 930, with the establishment of Althingi in Thingvellir, the annual parliament of Iceland. Today, Althingi is the oldest surviving parliament in the world and is now located in the Reykjavik city. Thingvellir became a national park in 1930 and is now the most visited destination by tourists traveling to Iceland. About 60 to 70 percent, or one and a half million tourists, visit Thingvellir every year to see Althingi's point of origin, and also the Almanagyao Canyon, where the continental drift between the North American and Eurasian tectonic plates is the most visible on Earth. Because of the seismic activity happening there, the Almanagyao Canyon subsides up to 2 centimeters each year, or approximately 0.79 inches. In 2004, Thingvellir was designated as a World Heritage Site for its cultural values and is therefore among over 1,000 cultural and natural heritage sites listed to be of unique value to humanity. With the Old Covenant in 1262, a pledge of Icelanders' fealty to the then Norwegian king, the Icelandic Commonwealth age ended. Norway was to rule Iceland and its people, from then on, Icelanders gradually lost their independence. Then in the year 1380, upon the death of the Norwegian king Haakon VI, the kingdoms of Norway and Denmark united and ruled over Icelanders. And then by the mid-16th century, the Icelandic Reformation took place. Icelanders had belonged to the Icelandic Catholic Church called Hólar, but then switched their religion to Lutheranism. The Icelandic Reformation culminated in the fall of 1550, when the last Catholic bishop in the Nordic countries, Jón Arason of Hólar, was executed in the Skálholt Bishopric along with two of his sons. This event marked a certain turning point, as the bishop Jón Arason had been the biggest religious opponent against the Lutheran Reformation in Iceland and had tried to conquer Iceland to establish Catholicism again. But before his execution, the Reformation had started considerably earlier. The Protestant movement started in Iceland in 1530, with German traders and Icelandic intellectuals who had sought their studies in Germany. The King of Denmark, Christian III, pressed for Lutheranism 
to be adopted in Iceland, which first began in the Skaulholt Bishopric in 1541, and then in the Holar Bishopric after the execution of Jón Arason in 1550. Iceland was a peasant society without any urban areas, which meant the majority of Icelanders were of a lower class of poor farmers and underprivileged people in serfdom, or in other words, people who were slaves instead of being domestics. This change of religion wasn't actually religious, but a political decision made by the liberal profession of those who had sought their studies abroad and were allies with the Skaulholt Bishopric. During the Icelandic Reformation, all the church's belongings and its penalty framework was transferred to the Danish king. Then in 1564, a strict legislation on moral issues was passed in Iceland, called the Grand Judgment. Death penalties and executions had been customary in Iceland since the legislation of the law code Jarsida in 1271, but increased with the Icelandic Reformation in 1550, especially with the introduction of the Grand Judgment, and 248 executions were known to having been carried out in Iceland until 1830. I recommend that you take a look at the research project Desjar Hinatamtu, or in English, Cairns of the Condemned, on the website dhd.hi.is. For more information on those who were executed during the greatest execution period of Iceland between 5015 to 1830, after the last execution had been carried out in Iceland, dozens of people were still sentenced to death, but the Danish king softened their penalty, and therefore, no one has been executed in Iceland ever since. Executions were mostly carried out immediately on the spot after a sentencing had been ruled at Althingi in Thingvellir in the 17th and 18th centuries. At Thingvellir, there were four main locations for executions, each serving their own purpose. Women were drowned in Drekkingarhelur, or drowning pool, mainly for committing incest and infanticide. Men were beheaded with an axe at Huckstock's Eyri, or execution block spit, preferably for murder, but beheading was the main method of execution in Iceland. For smaller crimes, such as theft, people were hanged at Galgaklatur, or Gallows Cliff. But for witchcraft, they were burned at the stake in Brennugjau, or Bonfire Fisher. For the most serious crimes, it was often demanded that the heads of those beheaded would be spiked on poles in public setting, preferably on a thoroughfare, and their heads then made stand until they started to rot to make an example to others. The public was expected to watch the executions of those condemned to death. And throughout the Almanakjau Canyon, heads and body parts of the condemned were lined up. For the most part, those executed were people of the lower class, mainly slaves, women and the homeless, and the authorities misused their power in the legal proceedings of most of these cases. When people were executed, they were buried in cairns at their execution site, which were graves of heaped-up stones 
or their bodies placed in nearby hollows if it proved to be too difficult to bury them in cairns. The reason for them not being buried in cemeteries was that those condemned to death were not allowed to be buried in the holy ground. One interesting side note, there are more people buried in Iceland without their heads attached to their torso other than those who were beheaded by execution. That is due to the ancient superstition that to prevent the dead from coming back to haunt, their grave had to be excavated and the head chopped off. The body then turned over in the grave to face down, and their head then placed against their buttocks with the nose towards the anus before their body was buried again. The 17th and 18th centuries are considered the most distressful and disastrous ones in Icelandic history, with bad weather conditions, poor growth of grass, sea ice packing inshore, and polar bears carried by the sea ice coming ashore, and syphilis outbreaks killed people. How do you like what you've heard so far? If you want to listen to upcoming episodes of Icelandic crime and mystery cases, click subscribe to be notified of new episodes. That way, you will also support the Icelandic True Crimes podcast. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, so thank you for your support. Icelandic True Crimes is on Instagram and Facebook, and on the website icelandictruecrimes.com you can find additional information on this case in the show notes. Now let's continue with the show. In mid-December of 1741, the same year Sinneva hadn't been able to attend Althingi due to bad health, she gave birth to another child while in custody at Eilstader in Flotstaller. She did not name the father of her child. Some believe that when Hans Wien made the excuses of Sinneva's absence at Althingi, he had done so because he had a bad conscience and was trying to hide Sinneva's pregnancy, which indicates he may have had something to do with Sinneva being pregnant. The birth of Sinneva's child made it clear why she had not been able to attend Althingi the previous summer and that it was not because of just bad health. Could it be that Hans Wien had been trying to cover up her pregnancy? And for whose benefit, Sinnevas or his own? Hans Wien later stated that he had not known of the childbirth in December, not until after the new year. After giving birth, the child was taken from Sinneva and baptized at Ketelstader church, but before, the priest asked her who its father was. She refused to name the father, and so her midwife also asked her the same question. Sinneva continued to refuse to name the father, so the midwife was ordered by the priest Stefan from Vatlanes to bring two honest men as witnesses and ask Sinneva again. Then Sinneva replied, I will not tell you for now. But a year after, by mid-April, while Sinneva was bedridden with smallpox during an outbreak in the east of Iceland, Hans Wien went by horse from Skredukluster to Eilstaðir in Flotstaður to question Sinneva of her child's father. 
Some said he did so in the presence of witnesses, but others stated Hans Wim was alone with Sinova when he questioned her about the father's name. But Hans said Sinova confessed to her brother Jon being the child's father. And so he returned to Skredekluster to ask Jon himself. Jon adamantly refused at first, but Hans Wim said Jon then confessed to be the father of Sinova's second child. On June 30th, in 1742, Hans Wim convened a district court at Bessastadir in Fljotstadur and asked a few assistant judges to attend to validate the death penalty his father Jens Wim had ruled against Sinova and Jon, and then passed them a sentence for committing incest a second time, for Hans Wien stated he had gotten them both to confess. Two witnesses pledged to the court that when Hans Wim had questioned Sinova if her brother Jon was the child's father, she had replied, it would have to be so. At the court, it was mentioned that they had both confessed without being forced to and of free will, and that both of them had remained in custody without any manacles. I do ask myself, though, if they were held in custody without any manacles, was it to make it more believable that they had not been forced to admit to committing the incest without any hardship or abuse? Hans Wim is supposed to have asked of the siblings to attend Althingen Thingvellir as soon as possible, which makes it look like he was trying to speed up the process of their case. Hans Wien passed the sentence that Sinova and Jon were to be executed by the law of God and the king for a second incest, and that Jon was to be beheaded and Sinova drowned in water, as the great judgment provided. Their sentence was to be arraigned at Althingen on July 11th, but neither Hans Wiem nor the siblings attended, which Hans Wiem later pleaded was because of his inability to borrow any horses to ride to Alfingi, due to asperity in Mulathing County. Because Sinova and Jon had been sentenced twice for committing incest, Hans Wiem was actually obliged to bring them to Alfingi on that day. However, since the signatures of some of the assisting judges seemed to be false, and one of them was even a convict and therefore ineligible, Hans Wiem's ruled sentence was not valid. The case was postponed until Althinge was to be held a year later. While the siblings waited in the custody of Hans Wiem, Jon tried to escape, nearing the preliminary hearing of the summer of 1743. But the priest Magnus Guimundsson of Hatlamstadir caught him and returned Jon back into the custody of Hans Wiem. When the case of Sinova and Jon was then arraigned a few days later at Althinge on July 16, in 1743, Hans Wiem did not attend, but instead sent Sigurdur Eyjolsson as his representative, one of those Hans Wiem had previously brought as a witness to Sinova's bad health. It looks like Hans Wiem knew that the biggest blow of the case would come into light at Althingi, and that he had deemed it was best to stay away. On behalf of Hans Wiem, Sigurdur Eyjolsson provided the indictment and a copy of the court ruling made by Hans Wiem, and then asked for the death penalty to be validated at Althingi. Sigurdur Stefansson 
the county magistrate of Skaftafellsisla, had been appointed the defender of the siblings, and he protested their death penalty, saying the assisting judges of Hans Wien were not present and that documents on administrative proceedings had not been handed in, just the copy of the court ruling, and therefore it was not possible to demonstrate that legal procedures had been followed at the district court. The case was therefore postponed until the next day. It looks like those at court in Althingi had their suspicions of Hans Wien, but some say that his enemies present had wanted to take advantage of the situation against him. The next day, on July 17th, the siblings attended the court at Althingi again with Sigurdur Eyjolsson, but then the siblings changed their testimony. When Jón was asked if at the district court Hans Wien had questioned him if he was the father of Sunneva's second child, Jón replied that Hans Wien had told him Sunneva had accused Jón of being its father, but that he had then said to Hans Wien that if Sunneva had said so, it must be, but he still found it difficult to believe she had accused him of that. Jón then said that before God and his own conscience, he knew he was not the father of the child and refused to having had any sexual encounter with his sister after the previous incest they had committed. When asked why he had confessed to being the father of both of Sunneva's children when granted an absolution in his confession to the priest, Jón replied that he had not been questioned by the priest, neither regarding the first child nor the second one, which the priest had actually been obliged to do by law. Jón also said that when Hans Wien questioned him at Skredeklustur, the only witnesses present were the wife of Hans Wien and the midwife who had delivered Sunneva's second child. Sunneva confessed to having accused her brother of being the second child's father, but when asked why she had done so, she said she had done it because she was frightened of the magistrate Hans Wien. When she was asked if Hans Wien had threatened her at the district court, she said he hadn't, but that he did threaten her during a private questioning at Eilstader in Fljotstaller, where she was held in custody and that she had informed Hans Wien that he was the father of her second child. Hans Wien had then told her to declare that her little brother Jón was its father, because if she did, it would not look any worse if they had committed incest again, and that they would not be executed because the king would pardon them anyway due to their young age. When asked where Hans Wien had conducted the questioning, she told the court that it had been in the living room at Eilstader in Flotstaller, while a man who had accompanied him waited outside, and that the other man Hans Wien had sent for had not arrived yet. When asked if she had been granted an absolution in her confession to the priest, she told them the priest had not questioned her about the child's father. Then Sunneva was asked by the court to name her second child's father, and she answered that no other than the magistrate Hans Wien could be its father, and then she formally declared him. She then relegated her declaration to God and her own conscience. Sunneva was gravely warned by the court to tell the truth, and she then swore to God she knew of nothing truer than what she had now said. She told them Hans Wien had impregnated her while she was a prisoner in his custody, 
and that he was the child's rightful father. Sigurður Eilsson, who had accompanied the siblings to Althingi, was surprised by Sinova's declaration of Hans Vium being the father, and said he did not have anything to say on behalf of Hans Vium. The court then ruled that Hans Vium, who had made a ruling in the case of Sinova and Jón in the district court, had not submitted any documents of legal proceedings, nor any other documents sealed or signed by him. In addition, that the siblings had denied committing incest for a second time, and that Sinova had only confessed to it due to Hans Vium's persuasion during the private questioning at Eilstadir in Flotstadur. Therefore, it was not possible for the court to conclude in the siblings' case, and the case was dismissed for further investigation into Sinova's declaration of Hans Vium being her child's father. He was to be fined of six dollars for unlawfully delaying the case, and he would then eventually be suspended from his magistrate position for misconduct, his partiality as a judge, and for oppression of the siblings while they were prisoners in his custody. What I find to be remarkable is that Seneva and Jón were still bound to remain in the custody of Hans Wiem or another magistrate. They were to do so on Hans Wiem's expense until the investigation into their case was brought to an end. Pursuant to the court's ruling, most people were convinced that the siblings were telling the truth of Hans Wiem being the father of Sinova's second child. Next, the court ruled on their previous case of committing incest, that since the siblings had confessed to the charge, they were to be executed. But the siblings' defender, Sigurdur Stefansson, insisted the court approach the king as soon as possible to ask of him to pardon Sinova and Jón due to how young they had been when the first child was born, and that until the king had made his verdict, they would not be delivered to an executioner while waiting in custody. Rape cases are often characterized by suppression in the way historical documentation is presented, which do not rely on memories of women who were raped. Those documentations are written by the hands of the man who wrote history. As an example, chronicles and court documents show that testimonies of women are characterized by controlled questioning by men and coercion of false memories. Women have been succumbed to their contemporary men in high-ranking positions who defend the vested interests and aspects of men. In court documents, Sinova's testimony shows coercion. She and other women in her days did not get any respect, nor did they have any rights, which made them powerless against the patriarchal period they lived in. It has been said that if the magistrate Hans Wiem was guilty of being the father of Sinova's child, it's clear how that must have happened. As a high-ranking official with power, he took advantage of Sinova's situation and the incestuous crime she had previously been accused of and raped her. When she then turned out to be pregnant by him, he tried to get out of trouble by having Sinova and Jón confess to committing another incest, and then promising these siblings, who did not know any better, that they would be saved by the king's grace. But Hans Wiem should have been aware that the king would not pardon a repeated infringement of incest. 
and therefore he should rather have had someone other than Yon to admit to being the child's father, as was common of men doing at the time when they wanted to escape recognition of paternity. It's very likely that Hans Wiem was going to have the siblings confess to committing incest for a second time so they'd be executed, and he'd then keep his position of honor in the office of district magistracy. The magistrate Thorsted Sigurdsson was appointed the sitting judge in the case to investigate who the real father was of Sunneva's child, Jón or Hans Wiem. Sunneva was brought into the custody of the magistrate Jón Oddsson Hjaltalin in Reykjavík city, and Jón taken into the custody of the magistrate Sigurdur Stefansson at Smyrlabjörg in Skaftafellsisla, and Hans Wiem was to cover the cost of their custody. While Jón was in custody of Sigurdur, he did various jobs, but he also impregnated the daughter of the magistrate Sigurdur, and also another woman working at the farm. Sunneva's declaration of Hans Wiem being her second child's father made a commotion at Althinki, and from then on, the siblings' case took a new and unexpected turn. What had before been the incestuous case of Sunneva and Jón was now a paternity case of the defendant Sunneva and the defendant Hans Wiem, the magistrate of Mulasisla County, who before this had sentenced Sunneva and Jón to death. I want to recommend a very interesting research project that began in 2018. It's called Desjar Hinadamtu, or in English, Cairns of the Condemned, and their aim is to search for and collect data on those executed in Iceland from 1550 to 1830. Cairns of the Condemned has a website, and I have also put a link to it in this episode's show notes. On their website is a remarkable interactive map showing the names of 248 individuals known to be sentenced to death and where they were executed, and it also lists their crimes and convictions. Those who stand behind this project also look for remains at the sites of executions. Now the first part has ended. And in the next episode, I will present the second half of the Sunneva cases. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Sunneva cases. If you liked this episode, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow Icelandic True Crimes on Instagram and Facebook. That way, you support this podcast and help others discover it. For links and other sources mentioned, visit IcelandicTrueCrimes.com and tap show notes. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, so you don't miss out on new episodes. Until next, see you in the discussion group on Facebook.